You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. To those of you listening to this episode in the future, what we say in the next couple of minutes may not have much context. But as we sit down to record today on Sunday, June 7, 2020, we just wanted to take a few moments to address some current events since we've been struck by how much that is going on today in our nation is connected to issues that are directly linked to the Civil War and Reconstruction. Although we've never met most of you, we feel as if we've been joined together with you through this podcast, joined together in a community of people who value and uphold the lessons of history. It gives Tracy and I great joy to view our past through the lens of this podcast And it makes us happy to be able to share that joy and that view of the past with each of you. The source of that happiness is our hope that as each of you shares this journey slash adventure with us, that each of us is enriched by the connection we formed through the telling of the story of the Civil War era. But lately we've been wondering, is there a wider purpose to our connection? Is there something in the retelling of the entire story of the Civil War and Reconstruction that can inform the people we are now, even in the light of the people who lived and died before we were even born, yet struggled with these same issues our nation is still grappling with even today? Does this look back hold for us a glimmer of understanding and hope that we might attach to our shared future as Americans? We hope so. Our wish for all of you is that you will be safe and well, and that this podcast would be a benefit not only in understanding the past, but in assessing the problems of the present and planning for a better future. If the past teaches us anything, it's the value in listening to, learning from, and respecting others. Any other way leads down the slippery slope of intolerance, hatred, and violence. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 326 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, we used the last episode to talk about Major General George Meade, the commander of the Federals Army of the Potomac. And now with this show, we'll be turning our attention to General Robert E. Lee, 
commander of the Confederates, Army of Northern Virginia. As we said previously on the podcast, Lee had established his headquarters just outside Chambersburg in a grove of trees known as Messersmith's Woods on June 26, 1863. By June 28, Lee's orders had placed Ewell's Corps in a position to capture the Pennsylvania State Capitol of Harrisburg after it had advanced to the Susquehanna River, and the Confederate Army commander had also drawn up orders that would set Longstreet's Corps and Hill's Corps in motion, marching eastward from their bivouacs around Chambersburg to support Ewell. But that night, the night of the 28th, those plans suddenly changed when the spy Harrison brought Lee news that the Union Army had already crossed the Potomac River. This was a pivotal moment in the campaign. Lee was surprised by Harrison's report and had to act quickly in order to meet the threat posed by the Federals. So he canceled Longstreet's and Hill's marching orders and recalled Ewell. To bring his scattered army together and get it ready to confront the enemy, Lee issued new orders that would concentrate the Army of Northern Virginia at Cashtown on the east side of South Mountain. As y'all may recall, we said previously on the podcast that it was important for Lee to know, as soon as it happened, just when the Union Army crossed the Potomac and started marching north. Receiving this vital information in a timely manner would be important because the Confederate Army would be dispersed across south-central Pennsylvania, and so Lee would need to know when to issue the orders that would unite his scattered command and get it ready to meet the enemy in battle. Robert E. Lee was a bit put out that he got this important news, that the Union Army was on the move, from the spy Harrison, since the Confederate commander had expected to receive this vital piece of intelligence from his cavalry chief, Jeb Stuart. But by June 28th, Lee hadn't heard from Stuart for five days. Let me say that again, because it bears repeating. By June 28th, Robert E. Lee hadn't heard from Jeb Stuart for five days. As we've been chronicling over on the members' episodes, Stuart and the three brigades of veteran rebel horsemen he had with him were off on their own adventure, first riding around the Union Army, and then, once they got up into Pennsylvania, trying to find and link back up with the rest of the Army of Northern Virginia. Although Lee hadn't received the vital news that the Federals were on the move from Stuart, but instead from the spy Harrison, He nevertheless acted swiftly to scrap the plan for Dick Yule to capture Harrisburg and for Longstreet and Hill to move east toward the Susquehanna to support Yule. Instead, Lee quickly issued those new orders that would unite his army, and he seemed to have matters well in hand. Lee may have appeared to have matters well in hand, but appearances can be deceiving, because as we know, the Army of Northern Virginia would never be united at Cashtown as Lee had intended. The Confederate commander had made it clear he didn't want to confront the Army of the Potomac before his own army was joined back together, but unanticipated events at Gettysburg on July 1st would lead to the unraveling of Robert E. Lee's design for his campaign in Pennsylvania.
Lee had departed from Chambersburg on June 30th and went as far as Greenwood on the main road to Cashtown and Gettysburg, but still on the near or west side of the mountain. Then, on the following morning, the morning of July 1st, Lee rode over South Mountain toward Cashtown. Prior to his departure from Greenwood, Lee sent a dispatch to Brigadier General John Imboden, and he wrapped up that message by saying, quote, My headquarters for the present will be at Cashtown, east of the mountains. However, as it turned out, Lee would never establish his headquarters at Cashtown. Lee asked James Longstreet to ride with him on the morning of July 1st, and Old Pete described Lee as being, quote, in his usual cheerful spirits, end quote. Well, if ignorance is bliss, then Robert E. Lee had cause to be cheerful on the morning of the first day of July. Unaware of what was transpiring that morning at Gettysburg, Lee was operating under the assumption that eight of his army's nine infantry divisions would be assembled at or near Cashtown by the end of day on July 1st. But as Lee and Longstreet rode over South Mountain and toward Cashtown, the sound of artillery fire rolled toward them from the east. Lee didn't know it yet, but the distant cannon fire spelled the doom of his plans. The artillery fire continued, and leaving Longstreet behind to take care of some business relating to the movement of his corps, Robert E. Lee hurried on, wanting to reach Cashtown as soon as possible and find out from A.P. Hill what the trouble was. Colonel Armistead Long of Lee's staff later recalled that the cannon fire, quote, caused Lee some little uneasiness. Lee reached Cashtown about 11 a.m., A.P. Hill, of course, had also heard the sound of artillery fire from the direction of Gettysburg, but he could offer Lee little enlightenment on what was going on. As we mentioned before, Hill was apparently not feeling well on July 1st, and so hadn't accompanied Heath's and Pender's divisions to Gettysburg. And so now, all he could tell Lee was that he had sent two-thirds of his corps and two battalions of artillery forward that morning, with the expectation of sweeping some odds and ends of Yankee militia or cavalry out of Gettysburg. Hill tried to reassure Lee by saying that Heath had been warned not to start any sort of sizable fight by himself. But even as Hill and Lee were talking, the artillery fire continued and increased, and it was clear that whatever was happening at Gettysburg, there was indeed major fighting going on. No doubt uncomfortable with how little solid information he could offer Lee, and realizing he had better find out firsthand what was going on, Hill mounted up and departed Cashtown for Gettysburg. Lee probably should have gone too, but his command style didn't lend itself to micromanaging, and he seems to have decided that he didn't want to be seen as looking over his subordinate shoulder. So Lee waited at Cashtown while Hill rode off. After A.P. Hill departed, Lee spoke with Major General Richard Anderson. Anderson commanded the 3rd Division in Hill's Corps, Heath's and Pender's, of course, being the other two. Anderson's division had started to arrive in Cashtown about 10 a.m. 
After arriving in Cashtown, Anderson, a much-respected officer, noted hearing, quote, the sound of brisk cannonading, end quote. One of Anderson's brigade commanders, Brigadier General Ambrose Wright, also mentioned in his official report that he had heard the sound of artillery fire from the direction of Gettysburg. Anderson said that he found Lee, quote, intently listening to the fire of the guns and very much disturbed and depressed, end quote. Anderson recalled that what seemed to upset Lee the most was not having Stuart with the army. According to Anderson, Lee admitted, I am in ignorance as to what we have in front of us here. About this time, Major Campbell Brown, Dick Yule's stepson and aide, rode into Cashtown, found Lee, and delivered a message from the 2nd Corps commander. At 9 o'clock that morning, Yule reported he had received A.P. Hill's message that Hill was advancing two of his divisions to Gettysburg. As we've already related on the podcast, Yule immediately decided to redirect Rhodes and Early's divisions of his own corps so that they, too, would march for Gettysburg rather than heading for Cashtown. Yule was acting in response to Hill's message and in accordance with Lee's discretionary orders of the day before, directing the Second Corps to go to either Cashtown or Gettysburg, according to circumstances. After he had reported this quote-unquote change in our movement, Brown recalled how Lee, quote, asked me with peculiar, almost querulous impatience, which I had never saw in him before, whether General Yule had heard anything from General Jeb Stewart, end quote. When Brown replied in the negative, Lee, according to Brown, offered up some uncharacteristically blunt comments regarding Stewart's prolonged absence. Brown admitted to being surprised by Lee's outburst, which was so different from his quote-unquote habitual reserve. Looking back on the scene, Brown later wrote that, quote, I now appreciate that he was really uneasy and irritated by Stewart's conduct. In his book on Gettysburg, Stephen Sears writes, quote, His irritation at Stewart and the report of Yule's change of direction seemed to have crystallized Lee's thinking. He determined to ride ahead to take control of what every minute was sounding more and more like a battlefield. He ordered Anderson to follow with his division. He instructed Major Brown to tell Yule to make every effort to get in touch with Stewart and he delivered an emphatic order to the commander of the Second Corps. General Lee, Brown wrote, then impressed on me very strongly that a general engagement was to be avoided until the arrival of the rest of the army. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. 
We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We're going to leave Robert E. Lee's arrival on the scene at Gettysburg until the next episode. What we'd like to do with the rest of this show is talk about a couple of failures with regard to Lee's generalship that set him up for defeat at Gettysburg. And when we speak of generalship, what we're talking about, very simply, is a general's skill at commanding a large military force. Lee's crucial failures in generalship can be seen in the fact that he was heading to Gettysburg on July 1st without essential control of his army in two important respects. One, reconnaissance, and two, the onset of the battle. Let's take a look at each of those in turn. So first, reconnaissance. You guys may recall that way back near the start of the Gettysburg campaign story arc, we pointed out that it's been said that information with regard to the enemy is the indispensable basis of all military plans. And when such information is missing or incomplete, a commander's plans are going to suffer. In other words, if you lack good, solid, reliable information about the enemy's strength, dispositions, and intentions, then any plans you make are going to be flawed because you aren't making decisions based on the true situation but instead your planning is based on assumptions. And assumptions, all too often, prove to be incorrect. It probably goes without saying, but we'll say it anyway, that all of this is important with regard to planning Civil War military operations, because in that realm, a general's faulty planning can lead to a lost battle. If information with regard to the enemy is the indispensable basis of all military plans, then as Robert E. Lee rode from Cashtown toward Gettysburg on the afternoon of July 1st, he was operating under a severe handicap. To put it bluntly, Lee had at best only a vague notion of the whereabouts of the Federal Army. The time had come to pay the piper, for Lee's rather cavalier attitude up to this point in the Pennsylvania campaign with regard to the lack of effective cavalry support, one, to screen his operations, and two, to keep an eye on what the enemy was up to. In the last episode, we said that George Meade was concerned about having to fight a battle at Gettysburg because the town was, in his words, quote, a place which I had never seen in my life. End quote. 
Well, you may point out that Robert E. Lee had never set eyes on Gettysburg either, which is true, but the crucial difference is that George Meade, thanks to his cavalry, had a pretty good idea about the dispositions of the opposing army. Right. Thanks to John Buford's excellent, spot-on intelligence about the whereabouts of the several Confederate corps, Meade knew what he was up against, while Robert E. Lee, as Tracy said just a moment ago, had at best only a vague notion of the whereabouts of the Federal Army as he rode toward Gettysburg on July 1st. A.P. Hill had sent Heath's and Pender's divisions marching to Gettysburg on the morning of the first day of July in complete ignorance of what lay before them. Hill's stated purpose was to learn what was in his front. His intention was sound, but his judgment was not. Hill didn't have cavalry to conduct reconnaissance operations, but his decision to conduct one with two infantry divisions and two artillery battalions was a poor command choice. But while A.P. Hill erred badly in how he went about learning what enemy force occupied Gettysburg, to us there's really no getting around the fact that Robert E. Lee is to blame for the fact there wasn't any Confederate cavalry on hand that was capable of effectively screening the Army's operations and keeping tabs on what the enemy was up to. Without a doubt, the absence of Jeb Stuart and his three brigades of experienced rebel horsemen from June 25th to July 2nd had a major impact on the Gettysburg campaign. Although many later tried to make Stuart himself the scapegoat, it seems clear that the buck stops with Robert E. Lee. Lee should have never let Stuart ride away from the rest of the army in the first place. Even under the best of circumstances, Lee would have had to expect he'd lose contact with his cavalry commander for several days. There was simply no way Stuart and his men could have hoped to cover the intended distance and link back up with the rest of the army somewhere in Pennsylvania in less than three or four days, all the while deep in the enemy's rear and without any means of regular contact with Lee. In his detailed report of January 1864, Lee made the following statement relating to his expectations regarding Stuart. Quote, It was expected that as soon as the Federal Army should cross the Potomac, General Stuart would give notice of its movements, and nothing having been heard from him, it was inferred that the enemy had not yet left Virginia. End quote. That report also tells about Lee learning from a scout, the spy Harrison, on the night of June 28th that the Federal Army had crossed the Potomac and marched north. Rather than pointing to a failure on Stuart's part, though, all of this is simply evidence that Lee had attached unrealistic expectations to Stuart's role in the campaign once he, Lee, had allowed Stuart to ride off away from the rest of the army. Nevertheless, Lee would later say, quote, The movements of the army preceding the Battle of Gettysburg had been much embarrassed by the absence of cavalry. End quote. And here, embarrassed means hampered or hindered. But at any rate, James Longstreet also addressed the absence of cavalry, later saying, 
the army moved forward as a man might walk over strange ground with his eyes shut. The truth of the matter is that the three brigades Jeb Stuart took with him on his ride were not the entire cavalry of the Army of Northern Virginia. The real problem was that the units Stuart took with him were three of the four best cavalry brigades in the Army, and the horsemen left behind with the Army were not, with the exception of Grumble Jones' brigade, equal to the task of performing regular screening and reconnaissance duties, owing to the lack of training, want of experience, or poor leadership. But those looking for someone to blame for the defeat at Gettysburg didn't want to hear any of that. Disappointed Southerners refused to believe the Confederacy's premier field commander, Robert E. Lee, could be responsible for losing a battle, particularly one as important as Gettysburg. So someone else, they felt sure, must be to blame. They quickly found a convenient scapegoat in Jeb Stuart, and Stuart would reap stinging criticism and substantial blame for one of the Confederacy's most stunning battlefield defeats. Stuart's detractors would claim it was his supposed failure to provide Lee with crucial information about the enemy's troop movements in the days leading up to the clash at Gettysburg that caused Lee to blunder into a battle he didn't seek on ground he didn't choose. It was all Stuart's fault, it was said, for going off on an ill-advised ride around the Federal Army when Lee needed him close at hand. But although Jeb Stuart made undeniable missteps and errors of judgment during his controversial ride to Gettysburg, what seems to be forgotten all too often is that it was Robert E. Lee who gave Stuart the green light to ride off, away from the rest of the Army. Given the importance of Lee's invasion of Pennsylvania and the critical role he expected Stuart and his cavalry to play in the campaign, the Confederate commander shouldn't have let Stuart ride off. And we don't think you need the benefit of hindsight to make that call. After all, in such a high-stakes operation as the movement north into the Keystone State, with so much riding on the outcome of the campaign, Robert E. Lee should have done everything in his power to give his army the greatest chance for success. But by allowing Stuart to go off, Lee did not do this. Instead, by endorsing Stuart's scheme to ride around the rear of the Federal Army before he linked up with Ewell in Pennsylvania, Lee made a mistake. And on July 1st, as his army blundered into battle at Gettysburg, it was time for Robert E. Lee to pay the price for that mistake. said that Lee's crucial failures in generalship can be seen in the fact that he was heading to Gettysburg on July 1st without essential control of his army in two important respects. One, reconnaissance, and two, the onset of the battle. We've spent quite a bit of time talking about the first of those points, that is, Lee having only a vague notion of the whereabouts of the Federal Army because that failure ties into the Stuart controversy, which we've mostly addressed on the members' episodes, but wanted to talk about here, too. But as far as the second point, that is, the onset of the battle, 
We've already talked quite a bit here on the regular episodes about the roles A.P. Hill and Henry Heath played in triggering the start of a major engagement at Gettysburg on July 1st, before Robert E. Lee was ready to fight such a battle. Robert E. Lee had, by all accounts, made it clear to his subordinate commanders that his intention was to unite the army at Cashtown before he dealt with the Federals, and that they were not to bring on a general engagement until he was ready, that is, not until the entire army was concentrated. It reflects poorly on Lee's command style that, despite his wishes, his plans fell apart so dramatically. After all, the Confederate army was never united at Cashtown, and two of his subordinates acted rashly in ways that went a long way towards starting a battle at Gettysburg on July 1st. It's easy to heap blame on Hill and Heath for the unlooked-for mess Robert E. Lee was forced to deal with on July 1st, but it's also hard to escape the impression that Lee didn't have his army well in hand as it hurtled toward a collision with the Federal Army at Gettysburg. As we'll see when Lee decided to go all-in and continue attacking on the afternoon of July 1st, he would be attempting to maintain the initiative and redeem the morning's failures. But it seems clear to us that the reason Lee had to scramble and improvise at Gettysburg on the afternoon of July 1st was to try to overcome his own mistakes. And although he would meet with some success that first day of the battle, unfortunately for the rebels, there would still be two more days of hard fighting. And during those two days of brutal, violent combat, Robert E. Lee would ultimately be outgeneraled by George Meade, and his men would be outfought by the Army of the Potomac. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Confrontation at Gettysburg by John David Hoptak. We really can't say enough about how impressed we are with Hoptak's effort in covering the entire campaign and battle in a book this size. It's hands down one of the best one-volume treatments out there, even though it's half the page count of some heavyweights in that category. Don't forget, you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade who went over to Patreon this past week and signed on to support the podcast. And that would be Stephen, AMAC5, Bill, David, Edward, Eric, James, Dan, and Scott. And thanks to Kathy S. for her donation. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.